Okay, and let's um, and let's get started. So, um, so Jim, as I had mentioned, thank you very much for um, uh, for joining us uh, this morning here at uh, here at Constellation. Um, I'm just going to give a little bit of background on a uh, little bit of background on on Jim Campbell for the uh, uh, for the group. So, um, so Jim is the host of um, of, uh, of a radio show called Business Talk with Jim Campbell. Um, if you're a finance person, you would probably find it. Uh, very interesting. I, I subscribe to Jim's uh, email uh, list, and every guest that comes on there is is extremely uh, interesting. So he is a, you know, a finance interviewer. Let's call him. Um, but the reason why he's here today is is that Jim is uh, is also a Bernie Madoff expert. So um, I have been I've been suggesting that everybody take a, a watch of um, of uh, Madoff, the Monster of Wall Street, which is a which is a Netflix series. If you've seen it, you would have seen Jim in that series a lot. He's in every one of those episodes and in there a lot talking about um, Bernie Madoff. Highly recommend that, um, uh, that everybody take a, take a watch of that. And what Jim is talking about, um, or the basis of, of what he's talking about in that, um, uh, in that docuseries is the book that Jim wrote a couple of years before that called um, Madoff Talks. And, and, and Jim had an exclusive relationship with, with Bernie Madoff when Bernie was in prison and Bernie was trying to tell his, uh, his side of the story. Um, Jim's also done consulting gigs at uh, IBM and KPMG and a few other different places. He's the proud father of, uh, of four grown girls. And, and I'm sure uh, last I checked was I think three grandchildren, Jim, but I'm, I'm sure the number has grown since, uh, since then. Um, but it sounds like you got a big, uh, a big family there as well. Now, as I was learning about Jim, um, going through and doing all this, doing all this research, because really I haven't mentioned what Jim is probably most, uh, what he's probably most famous for, at least from my perspective. And as I was learning about Jim, what came back to me was there's a movie that was released in 1998. If you're old like me, you may have seen it. Um, and it was called The Horse Whisperer. Now, The Horse Whisperer starred Robert Redford. And the movie was about a horse trainer who could speak to horses and and it was a unique skill set where he could he could communicate directly with, uh, with 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 horses now if robert redford was the horse whisperer jim campbell is most definitely the fraud whisperer okay that's the that's the name i've come up to, uh, with the jim here now you might say why is jim campbell the the fraud whisperer why have we tagged him with that um, with that nickname well jim is well known for a number of first interviews, let's call it. The first exclusive interview with Bernie Madoff after Bernie got into all of his troubles, including many interviews with his family members as well, who wouldn't speak to anybody else other than, other than Jim Campbell. Um, Jim spoke to Dennis Kozlowski. Dennis Kozlowski was the CEO of Tyco when Tyco, um, after Tyco ran into a whole bunch of uh, problems and Jim, in my early days at PwC, I actually used to work on ADT at the time. ADT was a subsidiary of, of Tyco, the home security system. So I'm well aware of the issues that uh, that Tyco got into. He also had a one-on-one relationship with Rumi Khan. Rumi Khan was a um, an individual who got um, tied up in some insider trading issues um, and got into to trouble on that. And then maybe most famously, he also ha um, had the first interviews with Elliot Spitzer. Now, Elliot Spitzer was the was the former um, New York governor. So again, a very a person of uh, in, in really a, a prominent position. Now, when Jim and I were preparing for this interview, 
um, I, I mentioned this term, the fraud whisperer, and I came up with my list and I didn't include Elliot Spitzer. Now, Jim corrected me and actually told me, he said, Scott, he said, um, if you're paying for interstate sexual activity, that's actually could be considered a fraud. So now we've got all four of those people actually meet the definition. So being able to build up a relationship with, with this gym is, is incredible. So if, you know, we basically have the Robert Redford of the finance industry joining us here today now. And Jim, if I'm being completely honest with you, I'm not sure I'd want to attend one of your dinner parties. And if I did, I'm probably leaving my wallet at home because yeah. the, 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 the people you've got there are, are interested. But we've got to dig into this a little bit and say, like, like these are, you know, how did you build up a relationship with, um, with, with these individuals and how did they get you to, to you know, sort of trust you in, 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 in bearing their soul? All right. Well, first, Scott, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to be with Constellation and your companies and uh, a Canadian uh, business uh, as well. We'll talk about banking later, probably, but Canada seems to run their banks a lot better uh, than we do. So anyway, it's the first time that anybody has ever compared me to Robert Redford. So, uh, we don't exactly get mistaken <laughs> looking alike, but uh, uh, and you know, it's funny, I get teased about this a bit. My, uh, I'm also the assistant news director at a radio station here in Greenwich, Connecticut, and the news director always jokes that you have to be in prison to get on my show. So um, <laughs> a little bit of a, a history there. Um, you know, um, and let's be humble first. By the time I get to these guys, not a lot of people want to talk to them. And um, these are guys always burning to tell their story. Because remember, they don't really sense um, that they're bad guys and that they have been wronged in certain ways and that they're victims. And I, I, couldn't, I always feel like um, Richard Nixon, who was people will remember from Watergate, always compelled to try to get out his story and to have another chance at, at being um, a big name and being successful. And, um, you know, I call it straight so that um, I think people feel comfortable that I'm not going to sandbag them or distort. Um, in the case of Bernie, what, what I couldn't figure out why he would have wanted to talk to me. Um, but, you know, in the end, I realized one of the major red flags in his uh, fraud was that he had no independent custodian of assets. And any money manager should really be having their assets held separately, like at a prime broker or at a bank. So, you know, the money's there. And then yep. the money manager does the uh, trades. Bernie would never allow that. And now th think about me. He viewed me a little bit as a custodian of his legacy, right? But he didn't want an independent custodian of his legacy. So he thought that he could probably con me uh, into telling uh, the story that he was trying to get out. And um, his son, you know, I met his son uh, by coincidence first when I was doing my show and I was interviewing a woman named Lori Sandell, who um, had written a book on the Madoff family life that Andrew had um uh, cooperated with a bit and forced Ruth to. She didn't want to do it. Um, and then upon talking to him, he introduced me to Ruth because coincidentally she was moving to Greenwich where I live. So I took her out to lunch and Bernie, when he responded to me and she set me up with Bernie, I said, you know, this is your chance to talk to history, but I'm going to vet every single word you tell me. And he said, uh, you know, Jim, um, 
Ruth and Andy have vouched for you, I'm, I, I'm going to accept those terms. So obviously it didn't quite work out the way he expected uh, in, in terms of that. Um, let me tell Kozlowski now, um, the CEO of Tyco, if people will remember, that was the Enron era right around uh, 2000. And he was at the time cover of Forbes, uh, number one CEO, growth CEO in the nation. He was considered to be potentially the next Jack Welch. He revealed to me actually that Jeffrey Immelt, who was the last uh, chairman of GE, and he were actually talking about merging Tyco into GE. Wow. Right before um, the arrest happened. And Immelt felt that it was too big of a deal for him to do right out of the chute um, following. But um, he also, um, and his case is a little different in that Tyco was a, honestly, a run company that was reporting real profits. That was all real, unlike Enron, which was all financial uh, finagling, uh, engineering, et cetera. Um, and he felt the board sandbagged him and that he got an abusive sentence, by the way, 10 years, twice as long as the average murderer gets in the U.S. Wow. Um, and he, burning feeling that the board let, let him hang out to dry. Now, what was he doing wrong in my mind? He was treating Tyco like a piggy bank. It was run by a few guys and um, doing stuff like taking out hundreds of millions of dollars loans against his future compensation, which he would pay back. So he wasn't stealing it or anything. The government maintained he did that behind the board's back. I find that hard to believe. Um, and um, so that, that piggy bank thing, which Bernie had the same issue, uh, was there. I'll finish up. Rumi Khan was part of Raj Rajaratnam, which was the biggest insider trading scandal. Maybe Stevie Cohen, um, when he settled uh, with the government. She... Um, not only she she turned informant, but even after she turned informant, they caught her cheating again, which, wow. tells, you, which tells you, you know, something. And she was a brilliant and um, basically, again, felt victimized. She cried when I interviewed her. The only other person, the only person uh, who's cried and felt that she wasn't going to get a second chance in life. And I told her in the U.S., we give second chances, but you have to show genuine remorse. And you have to re be uh, reformed. Spitzer is a sad story. Um, would have been the first Jewish president in my mind. Utterly brilliant guy. No insight into his behavior and no ability or intention to try to say, I've fallen. I need to get up. I need to turn my life around. I need to, you know, whatever. That, confess that way. Just not part of his um, constituency. Um, so therefore, you'll notice he's never really come back, um, yeah. never been uh, really um, accepted. All these guys share hubris, pride, narcissism, all the things that you can kind of think of. That's why they think they're victimized. That's why they think they've been wrong. Um, and you know what? All of them tremendously talented, uh, brilliant people um, who got on the wrong path. Jimmy. Bernie Madoff never cried when you interviewed him. Eh? Like that is that is shocking to me that Bernie Madoff never got never cried when you well, like you yeah. look at his kids, right? And 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 that's that that's shocking that that he never got emotional when you when yeah, you talk you with know, him. Um, Bernie used to say to me, uh, Jim, my lawyers tell me I need to show remorse, 
And, you know, I would, Bernie, that's not the best way to show remorse because your lawyers tell you you have to, you know. Yeah. Uh, so he, um, you know, that's where the sociopathic side comes in. It's not black and white. Um, but if you've seen the Netflix um, series, Joe Berlinger is a director. He's the number one true crime director. And he had done a lot on serial killers, Ted Bundy, uh, Whitey Bulger, um, and someone like Jeffrey Epstein, who was um, definitely some kind of a sociopath. But, um, you know, he, he would ask me, Joe would ask me, do I think Bernie's a sociopath? And I would say, Joe, you might know better than me because you've dealt with psychopaths. And he said there's a similarities in the narcissism, um, often charisma, often intelligence. And um, Bernie had all of that. It's more nuanced, though, because he did things um, that were very good as well, which we can talk about it, uh, if, you, if you want. But, um, you know, Bernie, um, the CBS Sunday morning uh, interview that I did, um, the thing that surprised the correspondent the single most was that side by side that Bernie had written me a seven page, single spaced, beautiful handwritten letter uh, to somebody he didn't know, really. And side by side was a one sentence apology he wrote from prison to his son, Andrew and Catherine Hooper, uh, his partner. And it said, I'm so sorry for everything, dad. That's the entire thing. Not even love dad. Wow. Uh, and it's just the, the correspondent could not, uh, you know, get over uh, that. And by the way, that was a huge confession for Bernie to have made in one, you know, one sentence uh, to his son. He was, he told me that, um, uh, you know, Mark committed suicide. And then Andrew um, died slow, more slowly of leukemia. And he did tell me that when um, he got the news that Andrew died, uh, he was put on suicide watch in prison and he did not, he, he wouldn't, he refused to eat for a couple of weeks. So, you know, he, he doesn't quite buy that he had no, um, you know, uh, remorse or feelings about at least his own children. And I do they now, now? Now, as 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 you as you mentioned, Jim, and we're going to get into this. Is is you know you disproved a lot of what Madoff told you. Yeah. Um, you, you know the one probably the most single biggest thing is just how long this Ponzi scheme actually went on for. But I'm just wondering in a general sense, um, because I think with Kozlowski, you've said you actually you actually talked to Dennis since he got out of prison and actually have a like a positive relationship. And I'm just wondering in in a general sense, do they talk to you after? you know, five years after the fact? Like, what is well, your relationship with them now? Yeah, let me tell you, Kozlowski, after uh, he and his wife read the Madoff book, and uh, they came to me and asked would I write his story. And I said, well, Dennis, you realize I need 100% editorial independence. Huh. And he, he, accept, he accepted that. Um, and so the, uh, so the issue has been, um, is there enough interest in this still 20 years later? He is burning to get the story out. And by the way, he doesn't put uh, any censorship on it. I can have anything I want. I can do anything, you know, ask anything, go anywhere. He doesn't need any prior, you know, approval. The issue is um, uh, I'm not sure the interest is there still. Um, for, and I don't know that I have the burning passion to do that next. Although it's a great honor to have, you know, someone like that. Um, uh, and I'm old enough. I remember intimately, you know, how big he was. And um, so I've been to his apartment in the uh, Trump building in the, uh, near the United, United Nations in New York City. We had dinner. He went over the whole thing to ask me uh, formally to do it. 
but I have not signed on to do it yet. His second thing was, could I write a long article about it? Um, and maybe I'll do that too, but um, it's it's not on the docket yet. So yeah, I, I have ongoing with him. With Spitzer, it's interesting. I haven't talked to him in a while, but I could email him and he'd e email me back almost instantly. You wow. know, that he, he did a TV show. He, he really wanted to come back. That's why he spoke to me. He was going to build a path. He wanted to get back into politics. And, you know, the first guy was he'd spoken to and he was going to try and get out. He eventually got a show on CNN uh, partnered with a woman. And I don't remember much about it, but I watched the premiere and he was being true Elliot. He was talking over her. He was, you know, trying to control everything, <laughs> dominating it. I sent him a text right off the air. I said, Elliot, you, you got to come across different. Don't talk over the poor woman. And, you know, he responded right back. I have to say, all these guys, let me ask any questions I want. I can beat up on them. I beat up on Bernie. And they, um, you know, they take it uh, and they give it back. And, um, you know, so uh, I have stayed. Rumi, I've had on a couple of times. I have not spoken to her in a while uh, either. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Now, Ruth Madoff, who we were very close. We were texting each other. We had lunches um emails etc she kept our relationship alive with bernie when the warden in uh, butner prison in north carolina tried to cut us off and she kept it going as an intermediary between me and bernie but she did stop talking um after um say a year or two before the book came out uh i think because of the fact that she's uh was trying to get bernie early release from prison um for health reasons um, but I have not. She watched the CBS Sunday morning interview, which is right before the book came out. She has a signed copy of the book from me, but she has not spoken to me uh, since then, which is, uh, you know, I've wanted to get closure, um, you know, so I've tried to keep uh, getting through to her, but I've not been able to. Last question in, in, on this group that fascinates me is, is um, what makes good people do bad things? Because like you say, uh, Jim, and we'll talk about Bernie, obviously, is that he's actually did a lot of good things before this, like in terms of, you know, like like the, uh, you know, the on the cutting edge of electronic trading and all that other sort of stuff yes. and cutting down commissions and all. And he actually had a completely legit business, yes. you know, separate from the the, the, the Ponzi scheme. Yes. You know, he's very, very charitable. You know, he obviously gave lots of money to, to charity and things like that. So, again, like like he had said, done a lot of good things. And I'm sure if you looked at those other um, three individuals. I'm sure they maybe share some of the same characteristics. You had mentioned terms like brilliant and things like that, which I'm sure all apply. And I'm just wondering when you look and and again, you like you say your your radio show. This is kind of you know one of the focus areas is is, is these type of individuals. What makes good people cross that line? What 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 makes them do bad things? You know, it's a not not only is that a great question, but it's one that um, I agonize over a lot. And in fact, I won't even start with the top guy. Um, Eleanor um, Spolari, who was uh, Madoff's right-hand person on the 19th legitimate business. And we'll, we'll, we'll go through all this detail, but she literally had this path issue that tormented her because the equivalent of her on the 17th floor, which was the Ponzi scheme, they came in the same day. They both had only high school educations. They were close friends, and Eleanor could never figure out how it is that she went this way, the right way, never cheated, and she went the wrong way. That we'll talk about later. Um, but 
it is a huge it's shakespearean in nature and it's tragic and you Absolutely. know to me, the common denominator is hubris and pride inability to admit wrong or to not be perfect or to not be able to deliver and they can't get themselves out of situations then which get them further and further on that wrong path um and it's it's it is tragic because bernie made off and you could take elliot spitzer you can you know first jewish president bernie could have been the equivalent of a um bill gates on wall street right and um so why the heck would you do that and you've got a legitimate business that's uh, worth three billion bucks even without any ponzi scheme and it's it's unfathomable and we can talk what well, we, we will talk about inside bernie's brain um because it is it is unfathomable but i think it's a character flaws a lack of moral courage a lack of self-confidence so they they constantly wonder if they're really as good as things are and um and then this pride uh that goes along with the insecurity that they can't show any kink in the armor and they can't admit any loss or they can't admit that they didn't do something right so they double down on it and they lie um and in bernie's case he did not come from a strong moral fiber uh underlaying him uh you know in my book i dedicate uh half the book to my dad uh who saying saying who gave me the moral foundation that bernie so sorely lacked and if you don't have that it's not necessarily easily to construct it uh, for yourself, or it's harder uh, to construct it uh, for yourself. But I attach it in the Shakespearean, you know, form to this hubris, this pride, um, this overweening desire for power at all costs, uh, no matter what it takes. And starting off maybe cutting corners a little closely and then bigger and bigger. The other thing is this criminal mindset what stuns me that in that way too is if I was caught running a Ponzi scheme and I was able to get it so that I got out of it um, with a minor sentence or you know um, probation or something, I would sit there on my knees and vow never to cross any line ever again for the rest of my life. And yet time and time again, these guys just go right back at it. They can't help themselves. As Frank Casey once told me, there's people that walk the corners this way and that way just like you're supposed to on a sidewalk and there's others that will always cross right across the diagonal they'll cut right through they're unable to follow the right path literally and um you know i don't know that i could say much more you know then i'd be pretending because how do you how do you why why would why do people do this stuff it, it is uh it is crazy now when you get through i knew bernie so intimately i had a pretty good sense of of, of his actual mind, but it still doesn't make any sense. And you know what? Bernie would tell me, you know, Jim, nobody knows why Madoff did this. And, you know, I would say, Bernie, you're Madoff, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, what you didn't say, Jim, in all of that, which yes. again, to me is, is, is shocking, is money. It's, it's like money and, and, and wealth and being able to kind of like, that is not what that that is not the primary lead on all of this, right? It is. It's. It, I'm sure it's part of it. Obviously, people want money, but it's that's not the lead, right? The lead is like you say. It's more about power 
and and you know and 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 individual characteristics but it's not about money at, yeah. at least primarily about money you know obviously yeah. money comes into play they're not going to do it for nothing you know what i mean but 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 it's not about it's not all about money yeah let me yeah that's a good point let me say too that it does depend on the individual joe um uh jeff pickhauer one of the big four in the book in my mind he definitely did it for greed he took nine times the amount of money that Bernie took out seven billion Nobody takes more money than the, than the guy that runs the Ponzi normally. Kozlowski came from nothing. I mean, uh, grew up in poverty in um, Newark. And he, in my mind, and I, and I said this, he, he got enamored by greed. And I don't mean in the criminal sense, like Bernie. I, I think he was just a gluttonous, you know, using yeah. the firm as a piggy bag. Now, was it illegal? The government said yes. The because the board didn't approve it. He was lining his pockets. I don't think that there's a strong case necessarily that that's true, that he stole money, but he clearly enjoyed money and he was buying houses and moats and all this stuff, as was Bernie. Bernie got a plane, Captain Teeb's house, the Palm Beach house, the Long Island house, the penthouse. So we mustn't underestimate greed, but the flaws, the character flaws, the failing, the inabilities, gets back to that hubris, that pride, that narcissism. Uh, I'm not, I can't get inside Pickhauer's mind. I think he's a despicable human being, um, but he certainly looked very greedy. He was involved in prior Ponzi schemes where he lost money. He was involved with Ivan Bosky, who was the big insider trader person in the 1980s. Um, so, you know, he, he, he was attracted to criminal folks. And well, on him and on him, Jim, the one quote on him in your in your book that I'll never forget, I, I read it about three different times on Pick Hour, was that his wife was terrified of him. <laughs> like, I had to read that, I think, about six times. And I was laughing out loud saying, if if there's an if there's going to be a knock against your it's, it's one thing if your wife doesn't like you, that's that's one thing. And maybe she turns into your ex-wife. That, that That's one thing. But it's another thing to say one of the people that knows you the best is your is your spouse. And to say that she's terrified of him is is again quite the that's quite the words to use when describing your you know your me, your, your, me, your, your, your me, husband. Let me give you a scoop then that's not in the book. Um, um, give you a little insight into Bernie's passive aggressive hatred of Pickhauer, which in and of itself is kind of bizarre, right? Because Pickhauer was bailing him out as well as extorting and blackmailing him. They had a place in Palm Beach right near the Madoffs. Bernie had an affair with Barbara Pickhauer, which wow. was clearly <laughs> driven by passive aggressive <laughs> of Jeff Pickhauer. That is not in the book. So the next, now you got into talking that you, you, you're talking about Kozlowski and that, and that you're thinking about potentially um, going down the path of, 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 of explaining the story on, on Kozlowski. So the next, the, the next topic of conversation is why are we all so interested in Bernie Madoff? This happened in 2008. You wrote a book about it. Netflix does a, you know, I can imagine getting on Netflix agenda is extremely, extremely difficult. Um, you know, just in terms of trying, I'm sure they have a million projects that are pitched to them and trying to get on their short list is, is extremely difficult. And this, the, the docuseries came out in whatever it was, December or January. January. Why are we all, why are we all so fascinated in Bernie Madoff it's nearly 15 years since the whole thing collapsed. You know what? 
hundred years from now, people are going to still be interested in Bernie Madoff. It's not, it, not only the scale, 65 billion, biggest Ponzi scheme in history, a Ponzi scheme that lasted 40 years, which is incredible, but it's like the American thing. We want to, and it may be universal, we want to believe too good to be true, right? And that's what this was, a story that was too good to be true. The returns were too good to be true. Um, it was an affinity crime, in this case, Jewish. 85% of the uh, victims or charities were Jewish. And this is stuff that hits people very deeply because you're essentially your own group, whether you're dentist or, you know, whether you're uh, of the Jewish faith, you're seeing a fundamental betrayal, a ripoff. So we're back into Shakespeare again. We're back into um, wanting to believe stuff to be true. And then the fact that it comes out as a fraud is so mind boggling, both in scope and, and who the person was that it's stranger than fiction. And um, you put all that together, I am convinced there will be unlimited interest in, the, in this for a hundred years. The other thing is, uh, think about this. Um, there were other Madoff documentaries done <coughs> and movies, but they were not of the serious nature of, the, of this uh, attempt that Netflix did. And nobody um, uh, until I did the book had un uncovered or explained the whole architecture, right? Which is how the regulatory system failed, Wall Street failed, um, and, you, and on and on, uh, the bank failed, every, every component of it. And um, this is where I give Netflix huge credit because Joe Berlinger in particular uh, took the book and I was worried from the day one, right? That they would tabloidize it Yep. And just, just the sex would be, you know, Bernie stuff and, you know, only looking at that and, the you know, the lies and the story. And it's it, he gets the whole story pretty much in there. And it's uh, he pretty much holds true to the book. And let me tell you about Netflix, because uh, it is amazing. The first thing is um, when I had to get I had to get an agent right to deal with these folks. And and I was looking at two, one at the big agencies, which is I got CAA, right, which is the number one agency in Hollywood. And then a smaller guy who um, had specialized in these kinds of uh, things. Anyway, he went and found that there was an ongoing Google search. Has Netflix done a documentary? Oh, really? Netflix? So there was some interest there. The second thing is Joe Berlinger wanted to move from serial killers into financial serial killers. So he had a real interest. So we come out two days before the book, the CBS Sunday morning news interview was out, right? The book, no one's heard of the book. No one's heard of me. And we had four, before Tuesday from the Sunday, four production companies came, try to buy the rights to the book. The way it works is a production company negotiates with the author, buys the rights to the book, and then they go try to find funding from the streaming studios, Netflix, HBO, Hulu, Disney, um, paramount. And um, so I go to CAA, my agent there, Katie Zwick says, we have all this production company, forget them, we're going to go direct to Netflix, which is really unusual. And um, we're going to try and we're going to get you the best deal from Netflix. And we're going to get you the, uh, the best director, uh, this guy named Berlinger. So I have a zoom call during the pandemic with Joe Berlinger and his team. And I, so I'm prepared to start off on my knees going like this. <laughs> before I could speak, Joe Berlinger, and he's sitting in, in like in a V, he's in the front and his staff is all behind him. And he goes, my development guy here says, I have to have this book. What do we need to do? Wow. I, I was completely flabbergasted. Now, maybe that's his MO, 
but it really uh, worked. And so they put us together and um, so um, signed the deal. And here's also interesting. Netflix comes up back and says, We're, we want the book rights and we want the movie rights, right? The, the, the uh, unscripted right is documentary. That's what we were talking about. But they, what they call scripted rights is movie. In other words, if they fictionalize it and they say, uh, we want that in the deal. And I say, no, I don't want to sell the movie rights and the documentary in the same deal because I think I can get more separately. Now, remember, I'm nobody, right? So Netflix, <laughs> Netflix comes back and says, sorry, the deal has to include it. So I tell my agent, tell him I'm walking. And my agent went to Berlinger, the director, and Berlinger went to Netflix and said, he's walking unless you take wow. that. Out. And they took wow. it out. They have the right of first refusal. So what happens next is, uh, I spent three months. Based, I, I turned over forty thousand documents to them, and they sp I spent three months in pre-production, basically teaching them because they none of them have any idea of finance, nothing. And and then they they filmed it for about uh, four or five months, of which I went out to the studio in New Jersey three times, and they filmed me for like ten hours. Um, and then Netflix takes it the final four months to get it ready for all the countries. Um, I don't know what that means, subtitles or whatever else. And then it, and then it, um, it, it, it came out in January, um, uh, January 4th. Netflix was tremendous. Um, Joe Berlinger, tremendous. Great people, integrity, um, honored the book, treated me so well. Um, you know, I, you know, it was a great experience. And uh, it, it's going to be seen by 150 million people, which is pretty mind boggling. Wow. You mentioned the. You, 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 would you be okay if they did something let HB, like HBO did that little one with Robert De Niro? And it sounds like they, you know, as with any TV show or movie, they're going to take the truth and bend it. You, you know what I mean? And it sounds like Bernie was a little upset with some of the bending that they did with that. Would you be okay if they did that with your book? Where if they if 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 they came out and said, look, you know, here, you know, we're going to do a. A movie on this and and we're going to bend a couple pieces of this oh in a movie now i would not have been happy in the documentary if they did anything like that and let me tell you something um joe did a a, a series on um jeffrey epstein right everybody's heard of him and it was based on the book by james patterson right who is a huge guy who has sold 400 million copies of books and they found the book was very sloppily written and Netflix was sued. Okay. Wow. So I come along and they, they want every single fact checked. In fact, when I would um, come back for like the second filming, um, the showrunner would come in with a list of questions Netflix had, because they were seeing, they, they see it five times during, while it's produced five different. And um, they were making sure. And Joe said they were certain <laughs> that my book was totally accurate. And um, so to me, that was really important. Now, you know, I talked to Bernie about that Robert De Niro thing, and he didn't like it. I have to be honest, I haven't watched any of the other ones, because I didn't feel comfortable. I said, I know these people. And I don't want to see fictional versions of them. And I don't want any influence of my mind. So to this day, I've not seen that. I've talked about it with Bernie and you know why he didn't like it. Um, I would not be comfortable um with a um with bending facts and making stuff up now in the movie i don't know and i don't know if anybody ended up being interested in the movie rights 
Um, I, I would just hope again to consult with them. And, you know, I don't, in, in the end, I don't have the right on the final product because they, they, um, they, they buy the rights. The, um, I did not see the documentary until one week before it aired. They gave me preview access, but, and, and Joe, um, uh, after I gave them everything and taught them everything, it was Joe's, you know, baby to do. And if you think the docuseries is great, I, you know, you got to give Joe the credit uh, for that. I was honored that he, he stuck to the book really well. In fact, I interviewed him on my show the day it, it premiered, right? And it was eerie because listening to him, he had internalized all the words that I used to describe all this stuff. I thought I was hearing myself back. Um, but what a, a great a great guy. And he gets the credit. He came up uh, right after he signed me. He said, I want to recreate the two floors. And I thought that was brilliant because those floors mirror Bernie's mind. And that I thought that was a great way to do it. That was his idea. He had the idea to put those, you know, the the fictional Madoff and stars in the background, not talking. That one, you know, I thought that was a little weird, but he had a reason for it. And I guess it's really worked. So, um, you know, I would do anything for Joe. That's it's a, for everybody listening, you have to watch it. If you're, you know, for all of us in finance, you'd find it, you'd find it fascinating. Um, now to set the table a little bit, uh, Jim, I think it would be helpful to, Maybe just explain in general terms, you know, what a Ponzi scheme is and, and where did the word Ponzi come from? Um, just a little bit of history on, 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 on Ponzi before we get into before okay. we get into Madoff. Let me simplify it first. Um, a Ponzi scheme means one, no real investment activity is going on. Returns are generated from the money of some investors to the others. What does that mean? More people have to come in the front door bringing their money that are leaving the back door, redeeming their money, taking it out, right? Remember, Bernie allowed anybody to take their money out whenever they wanted to. So the reason Ponzi scale, uh, Ponzi schemes fail, and usually quickly, is you can't keep bringing more people in the front door than are leaving the back door. Uh, this started with a guy named Charles Ponzi in the 1920s, and it had the hallmarks of what every Ponzi scheme seems to have, which is guaranteeing returns. And, you know, this is another thing that you ask how this stuff happens. Anybody, including your grandmother, who maybe has two shares of stock, um, knows that you can't guarantee returns in anything yeah. that faces the market. In other words, it's not a fixed income instrument or a checking account uh, uh, interest or whatever. And he was he was guaranteeing 50% returns in the matter of a few months for these international mail coupons. And um, they're all similar in that they guarantee these returns. They're not transparent. Um, they're not, you know, they're always kept opaque. They appeal to, to an affinity group of some kind so that the word starts going right through the network. We don't know how he's doing it. It looks great. It's 50%. It's guaranteed. Give him some money. <clears throat> and um, that's essentially what a Ponzi scheme is. Uh, it's not very complex. So, 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 so here's the question I've got. And we understand, you mentioned the grandmother. And Lord knows if, if I'm around, you know, I'm going to be a grandfather at some point. If, if I'm lucky enough, I'm, you know, 70 or 80 years old. And I would be a victim or a risk of victim of a Ponzi scheme, for sure. You know, again, you, you get to that age. And, and it's going to happen. That's me 
you know, in, in, in 30 or 40 years, let's say. If I was victimized as a Ponzi scheme, as a VP finance at Constellation, if I was victimized as a Ponzi scheme at a Ponzi scheme at this point, I would be questioning my, my ability. But the reality is, is that the Ponzi scheme victimizes people like me all the time. It, it victimizes sophisticated financial people yep. and, it, and it victimizes non-financial people. And I'm just wondering, we get the non-financial, you know, again, you, you make yep. a promise 50%, but how does it get people like me? You know what I mean? People, you know, again, we've all been burned on certain things in the past. How do we get burned on, how do we get burned on this? And in this case here, we're not talking about, you know, you know, a, a someone coming and fixing your kitchen, giving them a $10,000 deposit and they, and they disappear. We're talking about losing your life savings. We're talking about losing everything you have because you got victimized on a Ponzi scheme. How does it happen to sophisticated financial people? Yeah, you know what? It never ends too. If we get the chance to talk about FTX, um, you talk about victimizing sophisticated people, top hedge funds in the world, SoftBank, Sequoia, you know, these are these are not idiots. And yeah, exactly. Did obviously no due diligence when you look inside of, of FTX. Um, and, you know, it's the same kind of thing here. Now, remember how Madoff operated, um, because to answer your question fairly, you have non-sophisticated, moderate net worth investors, right, in Madoff. You have sophisticated hedge fund feeder funds, right? And then you have big investors who are also sophisticated. So you can't use the same, you know, how could all of these guys been suckered using the same analysis, right? These folks over here, pure trust of Bernie. And, you know, he had these beautiful fake statements and the whole operationalized, uh, they bought it. But I could never find anybody, no matter how sophisticated, who understood what his strategy was. And conceptually, his strategy was very simple. So, you know, <clears throat> he kept that opaqueness. Now, that middle group, as I went across here, the feeder funds, their only obligation is due diligence, right? Because they make a little 1% uh, fee on top of the management fees that the, the money manager gets to basically say, Scott, here's your risk profile. We have to you know, honor that so that you can sleep at night. You want X, Y, and Z. You're willing to take this level of risk. Oh, and, and in my 50 um, managers that I vetted, these three are the ones that match up to you. And then I got to put that money with them. Um, and I verified that they do what they say they do. I verified their results are real. I verified the assets are real, that they're held somewhere. And that's their whole job. And Bernie did not explain his strategy, really. He wouldn't allow any due diligence. He wouldn't allow any independent custodians. And it was take it or leave it. And these hedge funds were completely bribed, right? Because Bernie should have earned 2% of the assets, 20% of all the gains. It's hugely lucrative. And he takes that entire amount of money and he passes it back. Now, first off, Wall Street operates on essentially self-interest. There's no one on Wall Street that would give up fees like that. No one. It's just not done. So right off the bat, why the hell is he doing that? Um, and secondly, why are you putting that in your pocket and then abrogating your entire due diligence requirements? Because um, Bernie wouldn't allow it. He'd say, you want to ask these questions? Here's your money right back. And, um, you know, we can get into how he set it, this whole thing up as, you know, people wouldn't felt that they couldn't get in, right? It was a club. 
and we do yeah. anything to get in. And, um, you know, it was so it, it ranged then from we don't know how Bernie does it, but it's 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 guaranteed you got to do it to we think he's doing something that, that isn't right, but he's cheating for us. So we'll do it out to the far end. We know he's doing illegal stuff. We don't know what's a Ponzi scheme. So it ranges from people that were completely innocently ripped off to people that didn't do their job to people that knew it was criminal. And what were the characteristics of Bernie that made him so good at this? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know what I say? The first thing is the, the styles of Bernie. And he had three styles. Um, and the first one was uh, he ran his firm. He treated people like family, right? So he built up this great aura of integrity. And he didn't run his firm to screw clients or to put the interests of the firm before the clients. It was that was real that he was treating the clients really well, getting them the best price on the um, market making activity. Um, the second thing was he had some sort of intuitive ability to cut you off at your knees and bully you <laughs> and manipulate you. And I'm talking from his sons to the SEC. He just knew how to do it. And people constantly ask, how could the sons not know? We can talk about that. Um, and he had an intuitive sense. He could he knew where your greed factor was. He knew exactly how to manipulate you. He knew how to set himself up. I used to say, Bernie, uh, do you consider yourself a con man? And he'd go, you know, Jim, I don't maybe I am, but I don't really see it. And I said, you know what? The reason you're such a good con man is you come across as the anti-con. He's behind the curtain. He's not out conning people. He's telling you, I don't want your money. I don't need your money. Um, you know, uh, don't ask me questions. Um, I will deliver for you. And um, next thing you know, it spirals out of control because um, within the Jewish community, it just went from, he was called the Jewish T-bill. He was considered as safe as government treasuries. And it just spread like wildfire. And the guys that were spreading it all had financial incentive to spread it. Um, wow. and he knew He knew exactly how people were motivated by money and um he used it uh used it to the hilt you know these people on the 17th floor who enabled it for 40 years and never understood it was a ponzi scheme these were high school unsophisticated graduates he plied them with millions of millions of dollars and um basically got them off on that path so far down that they could never get out of it one of the interesting pieces of this is obviously where Mark and Andrew fit into fit into the story. Maybe just talk a little bit about them, about where they fit into all of this. And, you know, before we get into what did they know versus what should they have known, but maybe just explain their role in the, you know, in, in the company, let's just call it. Yeah, uh, it, it was a genuine family firm. Um, Peter, who was his brother, and Bernie started it in uh, Bernie started it in 1962 with $5,000 um, from uh, um, lawn services and lifeguarding uh, that he did back in uh, Rockaway, Queens, um, which is one of the northernmost points from Wall Street. But from where he came from, metaphorically, it's uh, you know it's it's like different planets. Um, so he starts this firm. Uh, basically with Ruth also helping out administratively and she ran the, the books, you know, kept checks and everything, which doesn't look good when you think of what happened in the long run. And um, 
to get a good water. The boys grow up uh, worshiping him. This guy's the king of Wall Street, literally. And, and, and Andy would say they would go into a restaurant and people would be coming up and kissing Bernie's ring, basically. Wow. And um, Bernie was an OCD level control freak. The boys were not even allowed to put posters up in their rooms. Everything had to be straight and narrow. And that's how they grew up. And they were destined to go into that firm from, you know, basically probably the day they were born. They started out as interns there. <clears throat> they ended up running the upstairs. And as we talk about it, um, uh, you know, in the mob, you're, the front of the restaurant is clean. The back of the restaurants where all the bad stuff goes on. And the boys were the front of the restaurant. Um, they were up there to, um, you know, uphold. They saw them. They saw themselves as very moral. Um, Bernie would not tolerate even little footfalls upstairs. Um, he would turn him, you know, you, you have a fiduciary responsibility to get the uh, customer the best price on every trade you're transacting as a market maker. You can't pocket the best trade, supposedly. Um, and not only did Bernie honor that, build his systems around that, he'd self-report himself. And so that's how the boys were, were uh, brought up. Um, he didn't, uh, Bernie kept them away from anything uh, that would uh, allow them to have knowledge of this. And um, again, perfect at cutting them off their knees. Andy even wanted to go work for Goldman Sachs um, to see if he could make it on his own. And Bernie made him feel so guilty um, that he couldn't bring himself, uh, he couldn't bring himself to quit. And I asked him, I, you know, Bernie, and he said, yeah, it's true, Jim. I manipulated him to keep him here. I thought that, um, you know, he'd be in a worse position if he got on the outside. They assume he left because he knew. So I wanted, you know, to keep him here. Um, but it wasn't, it was just because he wanted to control him. And, um, and that's how he was. His, his brother, you know, very close to him, but Bernie bullied him, manipulated him, treated him like dirt when he needed to. Um, and Peter put up with it. So in simple terms, they've got the back of the restaurant on the 17th floor. The kids aren't allowed there. That's no. where the Ponzi's going on. They've got this market leading business and this, this prop trading, which is legit. That's yep. where the kids are involved. Yep. Um, two floors apart. So yep. the obvious question is that you, you know, you've been asked a, a million and one, I'm going to make it a million too. Right. Is, is, is did Mark and Andy know what was going on? at the, you know, on, on the 17th floor. Right. Let me tell you, first off, when I started this, the Justice Department, the Southern District of New York, the FBI, the bankruptcy trustee who goes after the clawbacks, the forensic examiner who reverse engineered it, who I became very close to, and I put him in the book as one of the heroes, uh, Bruce Dubinsky. Every one of them said that the boys and the family had to know. And so I did my own investigation on that. And of course, you know, I was close to Ruth and Andy, but that was not relevant for the decision because uh, I was going to have to back it up with facts. And in fact, Catherine Hooper, who um, was um, uh, Andy's girlfriend, told me to the depth of her soul, that was her exact quote, I do not believe Andy knew about this, but if you find it, I will accept it, which, which boggles my mind to this day. And in fact, that is one of the uh, questions I get asked is, why did they all decide to talk to you? We talked about Bernie, because it's hard to really understand. Um, they have the, their own Jewish network, their own families. And why are they talking to some outside guy they don't know who would not show them the book? They knew nothing that was in it until the CBS 
uh, Sunday morning uh, thing. So, you know, the boys, um, they literally went downstairs. Eleanor told me only like five or six times in 20 years, mainly to check on things like um, electrical switches or something that uh, had, had gone, gone out. And, you know, they wanted to know what was going on there. They wanted to understand it. They would ask Bernie, like, you know, what if you're hit by a truck? We don't know what the hell you're doing down there. And Bernie would say, basically, F off. Um, you guys are running the upstairs. When this goes, when when this goes, when I go, it'll be shut down. People will be given their money back. So you do not need to know it. And you mind, you know, basically mind your own business. Um, and um, which, of course, doesn't morally excuse anybody, including the SEC, from not finding it. And um, so how do they run? And I don't know if you want me to get into this yet. How do they run the market making business and not know? Sure. Uh, yeah. Okay, so first off, Bruce Dabrinsky uncovers that 800 million bucks has been funneled from the 17th floor through various ways into the 19th floor back door, right? And it, then it is laundered through the trading P&Ls, right, to prop up the firm when the firm uh, was not making enough money to cover its overhead. Um and the, that is the proprietary trading desk, which you mentioned, which is Bernie's Capital, and the market-making desk, which is clearing trades largely for discount brokers, right? So that they're the back office for, for brokers. Bernie gets them the best prices uh, instantly through this state-of-the-art uh, leading edge at the time um, uh, in, uh, technology. So Mark runs the market-making desk and Andy runs the proprietary desk. So 800 million goes through there. How could they not know? Exactly. And so this that one that out of all the areas of involvement, that was a single one that was the toughest for me, uh, and and it caused me a lot of anxiety because uh, I either had to find them complicit or I had to guarantee I had proof, not for me to be able to make any any decision on that. Or 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 what you'd be saying is they're incompetent. You know, like 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 if if you're the people who run those businesses. How do you not know where 800 million bucks came from, right? Like if you're bleeding cash, like you look at our business units, if the BUs were losing money, I can bet you the CEOs would know about it and, and everybody would know about it and they would be, you know, guns a blazing to try and fix it. You know what I mean? Like, and if all of a sudden a windfall of 800 million bucks came in the business to prop it back up, they would know, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just, it's mind boggling to think that they wouldn't. You're right. Have and there's no that. way they could not have known if, if it was done the way you thought, uh, which is that they saw the P&Ls, right? So they suddenly, they see a hundred million bucks. And by the way, uh, the traders would have known, right? Yeah. Everybody would have known. And um, so that the whole floor would have been complicit, at least the trading thing. But here's how it happened. And I found, I called them deep throat. Only six people or so saw the real trading P&Ls, right? Um, and that is uh, Bernie and the CFO, right-hand person, right? The market-making uh, head, uh, Andy, and um, another, and Andy, one other, two people saw the proprietary and two people saw the market-making. Those two did not see the others, okay? So you're down to, you're down to on the prop side, um, only a couple of people seeing it. And so you can't include Andy. He's dead now, right? Um, uh, and one of the one of the two is the only person on that floor that knew Bernie was not trading. Okay. So you can't trust him. And 
he never told anybody else um, upstairs that there was no trading guts. He's the only one that knew that he compartmentalized. That left one guy who I called Deep Throat and I found him. And he's a regulator to this day. And what was happening was it was coming in um, through the Bank of New York because that's where he laundered it from his bank, J.P. Morgan. And the chief financial officer and the right-hand person and Bernie were hiding it. First, they didn't even hide it in the P&Ls. It was other areas of the firm, okay? Um, small esoteric areas, expense areas. And then, and then it was gradually more and more. Remember, this eight hundred million was not dumped today. It was done, yeah, yeah. done over eight years. Um, so it was done after the P and Ls came off the desk and went to the to the CFO because the market making guy that ran it every day, Mark overseeing it. That guy knew every single dollar that flew uh, that went through there. For for he invented that he created the system, and he. Um, uh, and, and he he monitored every every piece of it. In fact, when I told him that some of the money was stuffed into his P and L because they put it in they put it in, in active successful traders, so it'd be seen less. He was stunned because he never saw that. He saw the P and L as it was done as it was constructed. So it goes to the back office and they put it in. First, they put it in as I said some of those traders. They also created some fake traders, which Andy and Martin never saw but they didn't fit the nomenclature of the accounting system, okay? Wow. Because I asked the, the guy that the guy that saw the real P&Ls, okay? He didn't see the fake ones, obviously, right? He saw the real ones. And he did, he said, I don't recognize those. Those were not existed. They don't fit the nomenclature. And um, so here's the story. The real P&Ls, the market-making desk never, and so the, the, in other words, these are covering losses, right? They're covering trading losses, allegedly. The market making desk never had a trading loss ever for an annual. The prop desk never had a trading loss ever except 2008, 10 million bucks. Wow. Okay. So that 800 million was known only by the CFO Bonventry, his right hand woman, and Bernie, basically. Um, and, and that's why the boys uh, honestly did not know that. In fact, a good question would have been. Uh, I'm on the prop trading desk and I'm getting paid based 25% of my profits right above your uh, a, a base draw, right? If if I know that they're hemorrhaging losses, do you think, and, and they're not firing anybody, didn't fire, you know, what am I doing? Am I going to sit there and, 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 and accept that? You know, people, they, you, they fight, you fight over bonuses. Everybody knows, yeah. <laughs> right? Furthermore, Andy, um, and Catherine told me that Andy, when there was a problem with a trader uh, not making money at a time, Andy worked with them and monitored her very closely, right? So um, now Dubinsky, um, who found this, um, his job wasn't to determine um, whether that was real profitability or not. He just assumed that it went through there, right? Before I had any evidence, it made no sense to me because you have a prop trading desk of say 30 people, and the market making desk, which went from 100 down to about under 10 when they automated it, um, it didn't make sense that you could lose 800 million in trading, right? Yeah. You would have, even if Bernie couldn't accept failure, you wouldn't have just kept losing money like that. It's ridiculous. But I couldn't use that as my basis, right? So when I dove into it, I found this deep throat. He, he validated what the real losses were, what the real numbers were. 
then I saw they'd put it, they'd hidden it in other areas of the firm. So he'd been making up the profits, you know, uh, for decades, including sometimes even um, reducing the profits if he wanted to, as opposed to, you know, wow. upping them. And so that explains how they never saw it. And um, the trading losses never existed. They were they were covering the fact that the and I just said the desks were profitable, right? So shouldn't the firm be profitable? No, the desks uh, were profitable because they were the um, the trading profits, right? And the twenty five percent incentive compensation that they got paid, right? None of the overhead uh, for yeah. the rest of the firm. Uh, from, yeah. For all and they were carrying another two hundred people. Wow. Uh, None of that's covered. And of course, the Ponzi scheme money is being used, you know, to pay off this stuff. Uh, so, you know, that's that's how it happened. It doesn't excuse anybody, you know, in in the end. Um, but uh, the, the boys and then and then you got to look at demeanor, too. Right. And that's when Bernie confessed. First, of all, he has that nervous breakdown kind of in his office. They take him home and he confesses. And uh, now think about this. I, I think Bernie was hoping to buy another week, right? So that he could engineer the cover-up. He had a full cover-up, but he collapsed. He couldn't take the pressure. Yeah. And, you know, so, okay, boys, you know, give me a little time. So here it is. The boys don't move their money because all their money is there, right? Uh, they don't delay. They don't try to cover up. They don't say, dad, you've got three days. Dad, you turn yourself in. You know, um, after, after Mark collapses in the apartment and Andy, they get up and they go to the lawyers, right, to find out how you turn someone into the FBI. And they turned them in immediately. So they didn't do a single thing uh, that would have delayed turning their dad in, um, who they thought was honest five minutes before. Um, so, um, and, 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 and during the time, there's also whispers. And in some yep. cases, more than whispers. Like, again, there was a Barron's article that came out that in the de in the Netflix series, you spend a lot of time talking about the the Barron's article and the lady that wrote the Barron's article, yep. basically saying before the whole thing collapsed that we don't Years know before. what the, yeah, but we don't know what's going on with right. Bernie Madoff. Like, I, I, like, for the kids to read that, did they do anything with that article? You know, that, that's a good question, too. And, and, and remember, that's, that's up to nine years. And by the way, there weren't whispers. Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch refused to do business with him. OK. Yeah. And Pickhower had his money at Goldman. Um, so um, so think about that. And and the um, hedge funds, uh, the feeder funds had to know Bernie was lying to them. Right. Because he was lying to them. He was telling them stuff that they knew couldn't be true. He ordered, um, he ordered uh, Fairfield Greenwich, the biggest. He scripted their responses to this SEC, which they knew weren't true. Um, so it, it was not a secret. Now, here's the thing again about Aaron Arvidland's article. You say, well, didn't that raise questions? It absolutely did raise questions. Some customers called in. Frank DePascali shut it down so quickly, said that it was zero truth. It was <laughs> wrong. And... Basically, they threw it out. And I still can't believe to this day, talking to Aaron, who, by the way, went to the same college I did at Tufts, that she I would have expected this, too. She expected the phone to be off the hook yeah. one day and not one single phone call came in. Not one. Now, how is that? How is that possible? And as you know, I mean, go to Harry. Harry had 30 red flags laid out, which did nothing. Um, you know, it's an entire and this is. 
the untold story that was key to my book, which is the architecture of the enablement of Bernie is almost more profound than Bernie, right? That, that Wall Street turned a blind eye, that the hedge funds had willful blindness, that JP Morgan didn't find this. And as I told you, Jamie Dimon called me the day the Netflix thing came out the next day, um, that the SEC missed this five times, that FINRA missed this, that SIPC basically scammed them, uh, the FDIC equivalent on Wall Street. Um, and, and Bernie used to say to me, Jim, if the SEC didn't find this five times, why do you expect my sons would have found it? Um, well, why did you, you, just just on that point, you, you, you rhymed off a lot of large institutions in that in that point. How did the SEC miss it? Because, they, you know, again, they are required, you know, they have an external auditor as well. The external auditor worked out of a strip mall that that, that probably is self-explanatory. They're not using a, a large firm. But yeah. the SEC. You know, you don't get a choice in you get a choice to pick your auditor. You don't get a choice in your regulator. How did the SEC miss it? Yeah. And by the way, just get, go back to your auditor question. Um, tell me this. Name me any reputable firm on Wall Street, any reputable corporate guys. I take you guys, I'm sure none of you guys all have to have you guys all have either big four auditors or the big regional Grant Thorntons. All Absolutely. The hedge funds had all those guys. So why that wasn't a huge red flag? And by the way, it was, of course, J.P. Morgan's um, CEO, he became CEO, said, call that number in Jersey to make sure it's not a car, um, a law, you know, a car wash. <laughs> and, and I joked it was a laundromat. It was, yeah, because laundry is <laughs> funny. Um, so uh, there's no excuse for that. The SEC, how did they miss it? Well, first off, remember that they were given it too, because because uh, Harry gave it to them, um, and uh, this is interesting. They literally did not understand Harry Markopoulos. That is, they did not understand him. The second thing was they thought he was, um, and the reason they got on it was they were a competitor of Bernie's, right? And Harry's boss was saying, "How the hell is Bernie doing this, and you can't do this?" And that's what set them on it. Uh, to, so the SEC thought they were disgruntled competitors who they didn't understand and that was that was harry's fatal flaw because if you read the book his associate frank casey's an irish raconteur he can explain to you how it was a fraud in four minutes harry is right into the fourth derivative under the table within five minutes and it's hard to follow he's a different person now you, you know I'm, I'm close to him he's very humble now he understands he didn't dumb it down. He understands he offended them and that he was arrogant. Um, so then you have to go inside the SEC's internal. And, and, and by the way, they Bernie's very much trusted by the SEC. They um, would they would go to him and say, we don't know what Goldman Sachs is doing in this thing. Can you explain it? He was the, he, he, he created the NASDAQ architecture. He was the chairman of the NASDAQ. So we don't need to go further into the fact that he had huge credibility already. FINRA trusted him so much, they sent their, um, I don't know if people know what FINRA is, it's the self-regulatory agency on Wall Street, um, in reports with the uh, SEC, and they, they examine all the firms. They send their freshman examiners every year to Bernie's office for orientation, because his office looked like a Hollywood set for, um, you know, the way it was so beautifully laid out, and Bernie wined and dined them. People from the SEC would hand them uh, their resumes when they were examining because they wanted wow. they wanted to work for them. Now the structural issue 
is at the core of this because people will say well all the things i just gave you is why they they treated him well no they still they still examined him um but the way it's organized is the broker dealer which is the market maker gets one set of examiners and investment advisory or money managers get us get a separate they don't speak to each other they don't work with each other on the cases they don't they don't this is during the during when this happened they don't combine their reports it's as if they don't exist back then finra had no authority over the investment advisory business only broker dealers right in other words you and i looked at merrill lynch as the, the as one firm right yeah asset yep. management and finra looked at it as separate firms so they never even looked at it the SEC then would send these broker-dealer examiners in there, and all they would investigate him for, basically, it came down to front-running, right? And that's what Wall Street thought he was doing. He's doing front-running, and that means um, the market maker jumps in front of trades because he knows the customer behind is a buyer, so it's going to goose it up. And that's how he was delivering guaranteed returns, right? Because he always knew what the traders were doing. So... They go in there and they'd exonerate him for it because, of course, he wasn't doing front running. And um, then they'd come back and exam number two. And they what did they look at? Front running. Um, and they didn't know the 17th floor even existed. They didn't know he wasn't registered as a money manager. The investment advisory arm of the SEC never once in 40 years investigated that. In fact, when they finally forced him to register as a uh, investment advisor in 1986, two years before, they still didn't examine him before he, he went out of business. And as you know, the story in, in the book that, that Bernie told me in, in the docuseries um, that the SEC was actually in his office on a Friday night and Bernie said, I'll give you my DTC account number. The Depository Trust clears every trade on Wall Street to make sure there's money on one side and stock on the other. And call him up, my account 646, and you'll be able to trace every trade, which you could. Every single market maker trade could be traced. There's a sub-account in 646 for the investment advisory business, and you can tra trace every single Ponzi. There was not only no sub-account, there had never been a single trade through the DTC from the investment advisory business ever. And they didn't make that five minute phone call. Other times they sent requests for all of his trading data and didn't mail the letters. We think because they didn't really want to do the work to go through them, they would be intimidated. Bernie even knew he would also make up my, 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 uh, clear, my counterparties are in Europe and he would give them a list of fake often fake names or fake contacts within legitimate banks. And he had a sense that they weren't allowed to make international phone calls from wow. there, even though there's, you know, and so that he knew he had the whole, he just knew their, uh, their culture. Totally. They got some, they got those two young examiners in there that I talk about in the movie, in the docuseries, and they were asking hard questions and they did catch him in lies. He would intimidate them alternately and literally scare them. But his man, their management blocked him. They wanted to go to other, they wanted to go to the hedge funds and get the hedge funds data and see if they matched up. The SEC was worried the hedge funds would sue them. Um, and so they blocked them this way. And Bernie blocked them the other way. Bernie would tell them stuff like, I'm on the short list to be the next SEC chair. You know, and then of course, how did they operate the uh, examinations? Were they allowed to see anything? Bernie put them in a glassed conference room right next to his office. 
No one in the firm was allowed to speak with them except Frank D. Pascali. Now, remember, Peter is the compliance director. <laughs> He's not even really talking to them, you know. That's um, crazy. That like that's like a set of auditors coming in and saying, "Look, you're only allowed to speak to the CEO." Yeah. Like that is that is that that that. Like we're talking, and we're not talking about the audit partner. We're talking about like the junior staff members saying, "You're only allowed to speak to the CEO. That's it. You're not allowed to speak to anybody else." Not only that, Bernie would sit in there. They, so if they were there for two weeks, Bernie would be with them the whole two weeks. Can you see a CEO on Wall Street sitting with junior examiners for two weeks? Right. Again, even an hour. And, um, you know, he thought about bugging the room. He went through their briefcases when they were there. And sometimes he wasn't exactly sure what they were looking for, not realizing that they weren't really sure what they were looking for. Uh, they, in fact, they found Aaron Arvidland's article. He found it in the bag and he said, oh, my God. They're looking at the other stuff. And he, you know, he, he got, he got uh, totally pissed off at him. And there's an example that the SEC had Aaron's article and didn't do, uh, wasn't able to figure, uh, figure it out. Now, who were these guys? They were young lawyers, right? Didn't understand a thing about trading um, and were trying to stamp their cards to go work on Wall Street and make big money. Their metrics were how many of these cases can you close? How fast can you work, right? Yeah. So you no yeah. incentive, no incentive to look at complexity, right? You wanted cases you could shut quickly. The other thing is um, the eyesight of the of the SEC would move around. So let's say they would start a case. Suddenly there was a hot issue on mutual fund pricing, which is true. They might be ripped off the case, yeah, right? and not even finish it, or they would start the case and they would not have a good scope memo for what it is they were actually doing. Right. Or if they did have a good scope memo, they wouldn't finish it. Um, it's, it's just almost classic incompetence. Now you top it off after this thing's blown up. They, the inspector general for uh, the SEC, who's in, supposedly independent, does write a brilliant report brutalizing the SEC and they didn't censor it. But they released it the Friday of Labor Day weekend in the U.S., 6 p.m., and, uh, you know, which is basically burying it. Um, and four lower level SEC people were demoted. No one was fired, just like yeah. no one went to jail in the um, feeder, uh, feeder fund side. So well, the other pre and the other one you call out is J.P. Morgan, right? And and it sounds like the second that docuseries came out, it, it garnered a little bit of reaction at... Um, at J.P. Morgan, Jamie, you know, um, uh, Jamie, uh, I get. Well, first, I guess I should say, I counted six different divisions that that crossed Madoff within J.P. Morgan, and I was going to find them willfully blind, uh, which is a criminal offense if you can prove it, right? And um, obviously, the bankruptcy trustee sued them for nineteen billion dollars. Um, and the court it was case was thrown out of court. Um, and um, so this is this is where I give Jamie a lot of credit. So when I start my investigation, Jamie is recovering from a near fa uh, fatal aortic valve problem. Right. Um, that knocks him out. And I contact him and I, I say, you know, Jamie, could I talk to your people now? J.P. Morgan brutally failed. So his answer should should be no. Right. Sipic, yep. which is viewed as a successful entity, refused to let me speak to them. And if you read the book, you can see why. Even though I'm, I'm perfectly, uh, I, I credit them where they deserve credit. 
Jamie lets me see his people and they take me through the whole thing. Uh, as they said, this is totally painful to do. And, you know, basically their story is they didn't have the horizontal systems in place, right? And any, anybody that works in a corporation understands silos, right? Mm -hmm. This is a big company. And so the silos, the information didn't flow. So all the red flags that were seen in different areas were not put together until the UK uh, did it. Now, the 703 account, basically a checking account, um, $170 billion went through that account over the years, which is an unbelievable amount of money. Madoff had told them it was an operating expense account, you know, like buying paper clips. And stuff. <laughs> um, it was the investment advisory account, which they also at some point were supposed to have known. And uh, the KYC officer, know your customer. It's a regulatory requirement. You have to know what your customer's business is about so you're not doing money laundering. One month before Madoff went down, thought it was the market-making account. Didn't even know what account it was. But here's the thing. Um, $170 billion went through there. Madoff's running an equity strategy, so there's going to be tons of counterparty payments to, through there, right, and deposits. And it's an equity strategy, so tons of dividends deposited. Um, $4.4 billion dividends should have been deposited. JP Morgan is the only entity that can look into Bernie's finances, right? Because the feeder funds don't have custody. No one, no one can see it. And not a single counterparty deposit or payment ever, and not a single dollar of dividend ever. Wow. And, and all that money. Now, Bernie told me the most he ever had in that account was $5.9 billion. It was a $65 billion account between money supposedly in the market and in that account. But he never had more than 5.9 billion. And, um, you know, then you go over to Europe, right? So Europe in UK, there's so much demand for Madoff product. JP Morgan says, we're going to invent a synthetic Madoff. It's going to replicate the returns Madoff does. And they had a billion dollars of orders lined up for that. Wow. Now, how are they going to replicate it? They put money into the feeder funds, right? So that they would, yeah. they, they were going to earn the feeder fund money. Where'd they put that? Into the one Bank Medici FEMA fund, Sonia Cohn, which was gross money laundering of illegal stuff. In fact, this is why J.P. Morgan turned him in. Colombian. So J.P. Morgan does start to smell something's up. They don't warn their customers. They moved to get their capital out. And they got all of it but 30 million out. They, they take it out. The Colombian drug lords have their money in this same fund. They threaten, <laughs> the drug lords threaten J.P. Morgan. Wow. At that, at that point, J.P. Morgan goes to the U.K. financial authority and turns that in. But they don't tell the U.S. regulatory authorities. So, again, it slips through that crack. Wow. They don't tell the KYC officer. They don't tell the private banking area, which has made off clients, right? And they don't tell the broker-dealer unit, because Bernie was one of the clients that managed um, broker-dealer money, right? Wow. That was one of the first things I thought was, well, how could J.P. Morgan not have seen this? Well, maybe because there's 2 million accounts like this, right? And so it, just been, it wouldn't have stuck out. So I found out they had 200 accounts in the broker-dealer business, only 200. And they have um, volume... Uh, tech notices every let's say there's a spike in the account that day they get notices so that somebody can figure out why did it suddenly go up and of course, bernie's account went like this 
you know, because <laughs> yeah. And so they missed they missed that one too. Um, and I haven't even mentioned because it's kind of complex. Bernie ran a kiting scheme uh, with Norm Levy, his number two big four. And kiting scheme means taking advantage of the float before it's deposited because checks clear through the Fed. So you he was taking that fake interest. Um, before, well, while I was in the float, to the tune of get this ninety million dollars a day. Wow! Uh, and uh, J.P. Morgan had inkling they knew about that, but they didn't want to offend the other, the big four guy because he was a big customer. So Bernie was scamming them in three different ways in six different divisions with red flags all over the spot. And that's and so Jay, as I had Jamie calls me and um, you know starts trying to get his points across. Um, and literally, as I said, within a minute, he, he knew that I knew more than he did. Because remember, I've been studying this. For him, this was yep. And he um, he stopped challenging me and started asking me questions. And uh, he spoke pretty bluntly. Um, uh. he, you, you know, he, he, he was pretty blunt. I won't violate his um, privacy uh, any more than that. But he obviously trusted me a little bit because... He wouldn't have he wouldn't have admitted what he admitted. Um, and, so, 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 so then as we as, as we as we reflect on it, Jim, I'm interested to know your perspective on on career advice. Like when you sit with your daughters, let's say, and say, look, when you pick the company you want to choose, you're going to work for, or if you're working at the company and something doesn't feel right, like yeah. what's your what's your career advice to to people out there to say because there's there's what did you know with the going back to the kids there's what did they know that's one thing and you're saying you know what they didn't know that's kind of the conclusion but what should they have known and that's a much broader question and and the reality is too is that if you get caught up with this and you've got to you know you've got to put resumes together and things like that like those people if they've worked there for 30 years what are they going to have a 30-year block in their resume you know what I mean? Like, uh, so I'm just wondering your advice on everything you've learned and, and not just from this, but again, you've interviewed lots of people like this is, is career advice for people to say, look, like, how do you know, <clears throat> should you know in these situations and what do you do in those situations? Yeah. You know what, what, I, what I say is um, the values of the company start at the top and the way that they behave um, drives the business. Now, how do you determine the way they behave through the management incentive compensation system? Because people behave how they're paid. Um, Wall Street is the extreme on that. But in, you know, your bonus, your salary are tied to the objectives that are set for you. Are they realistic? Are you told to tell the truth on outlooks and stuff? Or are you fudging your numbers because that's what they want to hear? Are you paid to do stuff that screws customers? sell them the wrong product, sell them the product that makes you more money, but you know isn't the right product for that company. Is the culture short-term profit-driven only? And to survive, you need to make your numbers. Um, one, of the, one of the things critical about General Electric was, and what happened to them, was the culture was so make your numbers. Yeah. After a while, first off, you cut corners. And they did, they played with reserves. Uh, in, in the finance division, GE Capital, um, and because uh, there's, there's a lot of movement to play around with those numbers, and you feel like you have to report what management wants to hear, 
So all of a sudden, four layers down, by the time it's getting to the uh, CEO's office, it's it's not uh, it's not truthful or it's not accurate. Yeah. And by the way, um, I were I started my career at um, at IBM and uh, in an international division, and we had to give outlooks. And I was right out of business school, right? We had to give outlooks every month on performance, and you would not believe how scared the people were to report to the controller and up. I mean, they were literally scared. And you know what? Those guys wanted to hear the truth, you know? Yeah. They wanted to know what's really going on. Now, they may have been upset about it, but it was a very intimidating environment, you know? Um, and ultimately, a company can't, can't survive unless real information uh, is filtering up. But if you find yourself in that kind of a culture and you're not comfortable with it, you pretty much really should try to leave it, yeah. right? Uh, or you're going to find yourself compromising yourself more and more over time. And we haven't even really talked ethics yet or, or when you see fraud, right? This is company culture. Yeah. And um, that stuff you got to find out to the extent you can before you come in too, when you, when you hopefully are doing your due diligence through people that have worked there, through your network, um, uh, et cetera. But um, a tough goal-oriented goal culture is a good thing with honest management and good management and, and management where there's a free flow of information both way and where people move around the organization and where they're not silos, you know, um, and all those stuff are the norm, you know, bureaucracy tends to grow in and of itself. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, um, the tougher question is, okay, what do you do if you find yourself in this situation and you're being told to fudge that number on that, on that monthly report or to keep your mouth shut? Um, because people are not whistleblowers by nature. They do have their job. They do have their family. And, um, you know, it's, it's a very tough thing. You've got to hope that you have the fiber in you to tell the truth, uh, to do your job right. Um, not to cut corners. And you know what? I, over and over, it's never worth it. It's never worth it. You're going to get caught and you're going to lose yeah. everything. And you know, that that woman I told you on the 17th floor, the equivalent of Eleanor, she uh, Eleanor was making $125,000 a year, no IRA. Same job down here. She was making $670,000 her last year, had a $58 million IRA. Okay. She went to jail and lost all of it. It's not worth it. And, you know, yeah. and, and she didn't know she was um, facilitating a criminal enterprise, but she had to know that she was paid outsized gains and that she was making up trades. She didn't really understand it, but she was actually making up convertibles, for instance, when they started the formula. Bernie would say, we need a convertible conversion formula for this trade that makes 15%. So you start off with the uh, rate of return 15 and work back and plug it in. You know, wow. you, can't, you can't do that kind of work um, if you have, uh, you know, any integrity. And it's not going to pay off because you're going to get caught. Well, you lead pretty well in, in the early parts of the book and the and the docuseries saying there's one certainty if you agree, to, if you start a Ponzi scheme, is that you'll end up in prison. Yep. You know, and, and the reality is, too, is is it snowballs, right? Like, it, you know, the first one is maybe the hardest one. You know, but and then it's probably a downhill slope from there, right? And and that's the thing because it just builds and builds and builds. It just builds and builds, and also you cannot get more people forever. You know, yeah. you have to low. You know, it's just it's not doable. You're going to run out of money. 
And that's why, you know, and, and it took the fact that Bernie was enabled by so many wealthy people and the street and blindness and the regulatory. The only reason Bernie couldn't believe he, he, he couldn't believe that it kept that, 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 it, that he got away with it. He constantly thought he was going to get caught or arrested or, or whatever. And he didn't have the he, and he admitted this. He didn't have the moral courage to stop it. He also psychology. He could never accept any loss ever. And he could never accept not being the go to guy to, to deliver. That's why he saw himself as a victim. He said, you came to me, you're greedy, you're, you're pressuring me all the time, I have to give this to you. If you didn't have the, enough money to be properly in my fund, that's your fault, you lied to get into it. Um, and it was always the other, and the feeder funds were greedy. Um, and it was always everybody else's fault because he thought he was delivering. Yeah. Well, Jim, we could talk forever. That, that, that's the reality, we're, we're, we're at 9.30, 90 minutes and like, Again, I could talk to you for hours about this stuff. I think that the group finds this fascinating. I just, uh, I, if you haven't figured it out yet for the group, read the book, watch the docu-series. It is, it is fascinating. If you're a finance person, you're going to get it because Jim goes into the details, um, which again, a lot of these other ones, they don't. And as a finance person, you'll get the details and you'll appreciate the details. You know, that all of that knowledge you build up in your field you watch something like um, like the Monster of Wall Street, and again, you know the, those that knowledge actually makes the series much more enjoyable for you because you actually understand all of the all of the details. So, you know, Jim, again on behalf of CSI, thank you very much for joining us this morning. We need to get you back because again, you're an expert in like Silicon Valley Bank. You yeah. know, there's so many FDX, other things, yeah. and you've got we, you know, we had so many other things on the agenda to to to, to cover. There's so many other stuff to, to get at, but again, this was a fascinating conversation. Great work on the book. Great work on the docu series. Again, it's a great educational series for for anybody. You know, you can learn so many things coming out of this. Um, so many life's lessons, you know, um, on, on, on how to conduct your career and how to, you know, ethics and all this sort of stuff. Um, but, but again, on behalf of CSI, Jim, thank you very much for, uh, for taking the time this morning. We really appreciate it. Let me it. just say, Scott, that, that you spent a couple of months, you know, in prep for this and, and the ideas and the concepts and all the questions and all the due diligence. You didn't skip your due diligence. And um, it really, it, that kind of stuff means a tremendous amount of me. Uh, and the fact that people read the book and have seen it before they ask their questions and everything. And as I told you, anybody there that has the book that wants a signed book plate, I'll send them to Scott. You just stick them in your book uh, and everything. And it was, believe me, it was my honor to be out with, with CSI. So thank you very much, Scott. Great. Thank you very much, Jim. All right. We'll talk soon. Okay.